This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back to the show. After the major shakeup in the rules regarding eligibility for the Best Original Song category for 1951, the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decided that all was working very well and kept the rules as they were for 1952. That's good news for us because we can just dive right into learning more about the five songs nominated that year and the songwriters who created them. Eight men were nominated for the award this year, yet another year in which female songwriters failed to break through in terms of writing a top-notch song in Hollywood. The most popular female songwriter of the time, Dorothy Fields, was very busy on Broadway, initially hired to write the songs for Annie Get Your Gun before Irving Berlin came on board. Fields and her brother Herbert wrote the book for the very successful show, following that with the musical A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Anne Ronell, another female songwriter who had scored an Oscar nomination, was also busy on Broadway, but none of her work came close to the success that Fields was seeing. So, Hollywood songwriting continued to be a man's profession in the 1950s. And for the 1952 song nominees, seven of the eight men were previous Oscar nominees. The lone first-timer was a Russian-born, classically trained pianist named Dmitry Tiomkin. After he moved to Hollywood in 1929, Tiomkin wanted to be a pianist on film scores. But he broke his arm in 1937, thereby ending that career path. Tiomkin decided that composing music for films was his next best option, and he immediately connected with director Frank Capra for the film Lost Horizon in 1937. Tiomkin would write the scores for four more Frank Capra films in the 1930s and 1940s, including It's a Wonderful Life. After World War II, Tiomkin shifted his composing style to be more Americanized, and that suited director Fred Zinnemann well for the movie The Men in 1950. Their next project together was for the western High Noon, starring Gary Cooper as a sheriff waiting to face a man he put in jail who was about to be freed and looking for revenge. Tiomkin knew that a western movie wouldn't do well with a score flavored by European influences, so he looked to folk music for inspiration. As he was fashioning the score, he came up with a theme that made for a perfect melody for a song. Tiomkin had never written a song for a movie, but with the help of Oscar-winning lyricist Ned Washington, it would revolutionize how movie songs integrated themselves into a dramatic film. If you've never seen the movie High Noon, all you really need to do is listen to the song written for it, called The Ballad of High Noon, more popularly known as Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. The setup of the plot is pretty much detailed in the song, which musically features only a guitar, an accordion, and one of the first uses of an electronic musical accompaniment in the film. 
That electronic instrument is called the Hammond Novacord, which looks like a piano but can create many different sounds, including the driving percussion rhythm you hear throughout High Noon. We're introduced to the song during the opening credits. And again, if you need to know what you're about to experience in the film, the song encapsulates it completely. What we see on screen while the song plays are three men meeting in an unknown location, with no sound or dialogue taking away from the performance of the song. High Noon is sung by Tex Ritter, who was one of the first to popularize country music on the radio in the late 1920s. One of his radio shows was called The Lone Star Rangers, and it was broadcast on New York radio before he went wider with Cowboy Tom's Roundup throughout the East Coast. The title song is performed in first person, but the singer is not on screen. This marks one of the first times a song is performed in the film by someone who is not one of the characters. It's essentially serving as the inner voice of Gary Cooper's character. The main character never sings the song, doesn't even whistle the melody. So there's no feeling that the main character knows that this song exists, something that had not really been tried before in a movie. 
The underscore features the melody constantly in the first hour, and the actual song pops up eight times throughout the movie as the drama intensifies, just about 15 seconds or so each time, and always when Gary Cooper's Will Kane is on screen. It further proves that the song is meant to be the inner voice of Will Kane as he gets ready for the arrival of Frank Miller. The final statement of the song is the most powerful. It comes after Will has dispensed of Frank and his gang with the help of his wife. As Will tosses his badge onto the ground, angry that the town has turned their back on him, he climbs into the wagon and rides away with his wife as Tex Ritter sings, Do not forsake me, O oh my darling. Although you're grieving, I can't be leaving until I shoot Frank Miller dead. The End United Artists was afraid that the movie would not do very well, especially after it was received poorly by the press at an advanced screening. But Tiomkin didn't want to put all that work into a project that might show in just a few theaters. So he did what many studios had been doing for more than a decade. He put the song on the radio, and it became a big hit, and gave the film a lot of advanced hype. The radio version featured new lyrics by Ned Washington, in which Frank Miller is not mentioned. Instead of, the noonday train will bring Frank Miller, the line went, I do not know what fate awaits me. And the final line, until I shoot Frank Miller dead, becomes, now that I need you by my side, to rhyme with a revised line, you made that promise as a bride. Tex Ritter recorded the new version, as did Frankie Lane, whose version turned out to be more popular in the weeks leading up to the film's release in July 1952. Ritter's version, featuring the same instrumentation as the film version, peaked at number 12. Lane's version, a much more conventional rendition featuring backup vocalists, went to number 5. Do not forsake me, oh my God. On this our wedding day Do not forsake me, oh my darling Wait, wait, Lord I do not know what fate awaits me I only know I must be brave For I must face a man who hates me Or lie a coward A craven coward Or lie a coward In my grave That promise as a promise. 
Thanks in large part to the release of the song on national radio, the film High Noon became one of the biggest hits of 1952. It made $3.4 million in its initial release and collected seven Academy Award nominations. Tiomkin received two of them, one for the title song and another for his score. The last time I talked about Ned Washington on this podcast, his lyrics for the song My Foolish Heart were getting the shaft in the 1949 film of the same name, barely heard in a nightclub scene. Since then, he had been mildly busy writing a few forgettable songs in forgettable films. In 1952, in addition to writing High Noon, he wrote two songs for the highly anticipated Cecil B. DeMille movie The Greatest Show on Earth. Things seemed to be looking up for Ned Washington and for Dmitry Tiomkin. Another songwriter whose prospects were looking brighter was Jack Brooks, who was one of many asked to write new songs for the sequel to the Bob Hope comedy The Pale Face. This one is called Son of Pale Face, and even though the movie was released three years after the original film, the action takes place at least 25 years later when Bob Hope and Jane Russell's son goes looking for his father's gold. The Oscar-winning writers of Buttons and Bows from The Pale Face, Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, also wrote new songs for Son of Pale Face, but it was Jack Brooks's song, Am I in Love, that struck a chord with the music branch. Jack Brooks had scored his first Oscar nomination writing Old Buttermilk Sky with Hoagie Carmichael back in 1946 and was doing fairly well as a songwriter since then. Even though the studio contract system was on the verge of extinction at the time, Brooks's failure to snag one of those studio contracts might have hurt his chances to score a successful movie. Looking back at many of the songwriters who had scored Oscar nominations in the past five years, nine out of ten were under a studio contract. Ever the team player, Brooks was willing to write two new songs for Son of Paleface. One of them was Four-Legged Friend, sung by Roy Rogers about his trusted horse, Trigger. His nominated song, Am I in Love, comes late in the movie, when Bob Hope's Junior Potter has arrived at the rundown hotel where his dead father has hidden his gold loot. On his heels are Jane Russell as Mike, the gold thief looking to score the gold for her gang, and Roy Rogers as the federal agent looking to capture Mike and put her in jail. Mike has arrived and is trying to keep Junior from leaving. She makes him believe that they are going to get married that day and spend their honeymoon at the hotel. But first, Junior needs to shave. And that's when Mike and Junior perform the jazzy duet about trying to understand if the things they feel are actually signs they are in love. Mike is just playing along, looking to get what she wants. But for Junior, this is an authentic love song, complete with comedic flourishes melodically and physically. Am I in love? Am I in love? Well, I really wish I knew. All I know is I want a sigh when you're standing near. I get a humpty dumpty feeling. All I know is I want a sigh like I never sighed before. Now when you're in love, they say you can tell. You're sick in the heart and you never get well. I may be there right. I wish that I knew why I feel the way I do. Am I in love? Am I in love? Well, I'll leave it up to you. On 
All I know is I wanna dance when I look at you. I get a hotsy totsy feeling. All I know is I wanna dance like I've never danced before. My head's in a whirl, my heart's in a spin. And if I'm in love, I love what I'm in. I don't know why I, don't know why. I feel this way, but the feeling feels okay. Are you in love? Am I in love? Well, I really couldn't say. All I know is I wanna sing when you smile at me. I get a lotty dotty feeling. All I know is I wanna sing like I've never sung before. Got a humpty dumpty feeling. Got a hotsy totsy feeling. Got a lotty-dotty feeling too Am I in love? Am I in love? Am I in love? Am I in love? Well, I leave it I gotta go and freshen up, Junior, but you're a deer. You're an antelope. Later on, we go out in the range and play, huh? Am I in love? Am I in love? Well, I leave Mike. It's a bit weird to see Bob Hope and Jane Russell falling in love again in the sequel as different characters. Maureen O'Hara was in line to play Mike instead of Jane Russell, but she turned it down because she didn't think she could be funny at the time. Reports of a divorce from her second husband, Will Price, were becoming public, and O'Hara was feeling too depressed to star in a comedy. She was well enough to star opposite John Wayne that year in the much more appreciated film The Quiet Man, a move that might have been the proper choice. Son of Paleface made a lot of money, $3.4 million to be exact, the same as High Noon, but that didn't convince Paramount to make a third Paleface movie. Bob Hope and Bing Crosby did their seventh road movie in 1952 called Road to Bally, and its dismal box office helped Paramount decide that the series might be on its last legs after a decade of success. There would be one more road movie in 1962, but the writing was on the wall in 1952. Bing Crosby did a musical film of his own in 1952 for Paramount called Just For You. He reteamed with Jane Wyman for the second time, but the results weren't as universally praised as their work in Here Comes the Groom the year before. It was clear that songwriters Harry Warren and Leo Robin were tasked with capturing the lightning that Hoagie Carmichael and Johnny Mercer created for Crosby and Wyman with In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening the year before. Their attempt resulted in Zing a Little Zong, and it earned Warren and Robin another Oscar nomination, as well as a second nod for Paramount in 1952. This is the first nominated song to come from what was termed a backstage musical in quite a while. Those movies that portrayed people in entertainment working to put on a show were always the perfect place to put in a great hit song, going back to Gold Diggers of 1935 all the way up to Strike Up the Band and the Dolly Sisters. In the case of Just For You, Bing plays Jordan Blake, a producer who is prepping a new show for the Broadway stage, and Wyman is his leading lady, Carolina. Turns out Jordan is in love with Carolina, as is Jordan's college-age son. This is definitely a different love triangle than being experienced in movies with Bob Hope or Fred Astaire. 
The song gets a tiny preview in the opening credits, but its main performance comes at the after party for Jordan and Carolina's show. Zing a Little Zong is one of the songs performed in that show, and Jordan and Carolina are asked to sing it at the party. It's another nonsensical song, very much like in the cool, cool, cool of the evening, with no real through line except that many of the S sounds are replaced by Z sounds. Zing, zing. Zing, 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 a zing zum sentimental melody About a chapel or an apple tree About a couple living happily And I'll be glad to zing along It ain't the season that has me kind of silly You really are a dolly, a dolly and a dilly You got a reason to cuddle sorta close to me And we can do a very clever bit of close A harmony, zing, zing, zing It's getting late in my pets We got a most important date to set I'm sure that we could make a great duet And we could sing a little love song all night long You grab the melody and I'll take some of the open spots Don't get lost Zing, zing, zing a little song with me. Well, sing a little song. I know we're not beside a side and of I'll me. And I'll be glad to sing along. But when you're sitting by the side of me, you want a what? I want to sing a little song. She wants to sing a little sing song. Sing some sentimental melody. It's all about, about a chapel or an apple tree. And I'll be glad about to sing a couple living happily. How's that with you? Well, I'll be glad to sing it too. Well, okay. It ain't a season that has me kind of silly. You really are a doll. A dolly and a billy You got a reason to cuddle sort of close to me And we could do a very clever bit of close Harmony, zing, zing, zing It's getting late, my pet Forgot to set the date I know that we could make a great duet I'll be the tenor Alto and baritone And we could sing a little love song A little song. Well, I'll be glad to sing along. Oh, come in. It ain't the season that has begun to sing. Yeah. You really are a dolly. Yeah. Oh, a dolly and a dilly. Thanks. I got a reason to keep you kind of close to me. Because we, we can do, do a very clever bit of close harmony. And sing, sing, sing. It's getting late, my friend. Forgot to set the date. We have a most important date to set. I know that we could make a great duet. And we could sing. And we could sing a little love song. Side to side, 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 to side
I want to sing a little song. How about a little sweet? Something on the quiet side. How about a couple of the starry eyes? They're never sad because they're satisfied. As long as they can sing a song. Could be the music that's got me off my noodle. Uh, could be the Venus Nitzel there. Could be the apple strudel. When we're together, I want to sing a serenade. And we could dance it up a bit and make a hit and do it. Made a little sing, a sing, a sing. We're killing at the net. You know we'll make a great duet. How can we miss? Twist up like this. Are you well? Oh, well, we'll settle for a love song. And like the song never existed, the party goes on when the song ends. Pluck the song out of the film and nothing is really missed except that Zing a Little Zong is arguably the best song of the movie. It shows off the great chemistry that Bing Crosby and Jane Wyman had and all the fun they had working together. And it's another unconventional love song about two people who are all so happy together that they can't say a lot of the words correctly. As for Harry Warren and Leo Robin, they likely had a grand time working on the nine songs for the movie. Between the two of them, they had won four Academy Awards for songwriting, and it shows in every song they wrote for Just For You that they had amazing talents. In the six years since winning an Oscar for On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, Harry Warren was fairly busy, writing songs for Mickey Rooney, Doris Day, Fred Astaire, and Judy Garland, many of them with lyricist Ralph Blaine. Though Leo Robin had been known to skip around from one song composer to another in recent years, he stuck with Jules Stein for the songs in two musicals in 1951. Bing Crosby and Jane Wyman recorded Zing a Little Zong for Decca Records, but it didn't crack the top 10 of the Billboard sales charts. It only got as high as number 12, which could be considered a disappointment for Bing. It's not that music styles were shifting away from the type of songs that made Bing famous over the past two decades. I think the public was just hungry for new voices, and that came in the forms of K-Star, Johnny Ray, and a young Rosemary Clooney. And Bing was slowly sliding down the list of the most popular film stars. From 1944 to 1948, Bing was number one on the box office list in the United States. But in 1949, he dropped to second place, then third, and then all the way to fourth in 1952. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis held the number one spot, followed by Gary Cooper and John Wayne. It's a shame that Bing Crosby and Jane Wyman only did two films together because they are a great pair on screen. Wyman only did one more movie musical, 1953's Let's Do It Again, before returning to her dramatic roots for the remainder of the 1950s. Jack Brooks wasn't the only solo Oscar-nominated songwriter tasked with writing a complete song score for a musical in 1952. Frank Lesser did the same for the movie Hans Christian Andersen, which took a very fictionalized look into the life of the famous children's author with Danny Kaye in the lead role. Kay's wife, Sylvia Fine, was the first songwriter to be picked for the film after suggesting to producer Samuel Goldwyn that Danny Kaye would be better than original choice Jimmy Stewart. Remember how unnatural Jimmy Stewart was as a musical performer back in 1936 for Born to Dance? Apparently, Samuel Goldwyn didn't see that film, 
and only wanted Stewart because of his star power. But Kay was a more natural singer and was more popular at the time. Fine was set to write songs until Moss Hart was hired as the screenwriter. It was Hart who suggested hiring Lesser based on the success of Guys and Dolls on Broadway in 1950, which included the now-famous Luck Be a Lady. In addition to the Oscar he won for Baby It's Cold Outside in 1949, Lesser had a Tony Award on his mantle for the score to Guys and Dolls. That same year, Lesser formed Frank Music Corporation as a way to hold all the rights to the songs he wrote, and would eventually bring in other songwriters, including Meredith Wilson, the mind behind 1957's The Music Man. With the Frank Music Corporation fully integrated, and with Goldwyn making the difficult choice to fire Danny Kaye's wife in favor of an Oscar-winning songwriter, Lesser returned to Hollywood to tackle the song score for Hans Christian Andersen, handing in eight songs. It's a bit of a departure for Lesser, who had been popular for writing very grown-up songs to now writing music for a children's movie. The film sets about telling the origins of many of Anderson's famous fairy tales, including The Little Mermaid, The Ugly Duckling, and Thumbelina. It's the story of Thumbelina that brings us the Oscar-nominated song. Hans has decided to travel to Copenhagen from his small town in Denmark to make a new life. When he arrives, he is arrested for disrespecting the statue of the king in the town square. While he's in jail, he sees a girl playing outside and begins a conversation with her. Hans says he's expecting a visitor and creates the character of Thumbelina by marking his thumb with a pen and wrapping a scarf around his hand to make it look like a dress. Instantly, the little girl is fascinated, and Hans continues with a song about the petite Thumbelina, who is sad that she is very small. Are you unhappy because you're so little? Huh? Well, that's nothing to make such a sad face about, is it? Here, come on. Though you're no bigger than my thumb, than my thumb, than my thumb, sweet thumbelina, don't be glum. Now, 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 ah, ah, ah. come, come, come. Thumbelina, thumbelina, tiny little thing. Thumbelina, dance, Thumbelina, sing. Oh, Thumbelina, what's the difference if you're very small? When your heart is full of love, you're nine feet tall. Oh, she's still unhappy. What's the matter, Thumby? Would you like a little playmate? You would? Oh, yeah. There. Say, how do you do? How do you do? Want a kiss? Uh-huh. Maybe you'd like to dance. Would you like to dance? You would? Well, here we go. Come on. Thumbelina, Thumbelina, tiny little thing. Thumbelina, dance. Thumbelina, sing. Thumbelina, what's the difference if you're very small? When your heart is full of love, you're nine feet tall. At the end of the movie, when Hans has returned to his small town and adored by everyone, we get a quick reprise of just about every song heard earlier. The schoolteacher who had earlier yelled at Hans for teaching the children the wrong type of stories was now singing along with his favorite song, Thumbelina. Hans! My favorite, huh? Thumbelina! Though you're no bigger than my thumb, 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 
sweet Thumbelina, don't be glum. Don't be glum. Now, now, now. Uh, everybody. Oh, Thumbelina, Thumbelina, tiny little All of the scenes which feature Hans telling one of his now famous stories, including the ugly duckling and the emperor who had no clothes, is told in song. All of them have very memorable melodies and are the standouts of the song score. There is a love song in the film called Anywhere I Wander. After Hans has met the beautiful lead ballerina in the city's ballet company, and after he realizes she's married, he sings that no matter where he is, it won't be home because she's not there. Her arms were warm as they welcomed me. Her eyes were fire bright. And then I knew that my path must be through the ever haunted night. For anywhere I want. Anywhere I roam Till I'm in the arms of my darling again My heart will find no home Anywhere I wander Anywhere I roam Anywhere I Wander got a big commercial recording by 22-year-old Julius La Rosa, who had gotten a rocky start in the music business under the guidance of manager Arthur Godfrey. La Rosa was fired on air by Godfrey after a disagreement over policy. La Rosa bounced back in 1952, got this recording of Anywhere I Wander, and took it as high as number four on the Billboard charts in the first two months of 1953. Though Anywhere I Wander was a huge hit, the song didn't make an impact until late in the Oscar nomination period. That would perhaps explain why Thumbelina got the nomination. Or perhaps voters liked the song about one of the most famous Anderson fairy tales more. Again, remember the preferential ballot. Frank Lesser didn't feel the same way, though. On the official Frank Lesser website, there's a comment from his daughter, Susan, that claims Frank very much disliked Thumbelina, calling it, an insignificant little ditty, and an example of what a cheap song sounded like. But perhaps this is what he was supposed to do, write a song that might be a minor tune, but would still work its way into audience's memories. Apparently, it did just that. 
So the fifth nominated song is performed in its film by another big-time singer, Mario Lanza. MGM was happy to have signed the opera singer who was trying to find his footing in Hollywood. After making two great films to start his career, he continued to showcase his tenor singing skills in Because You're Mine, one year after becoming a big-time star with his turn in The Great Caruso. Lanza reportedly did not want to star in Because You're Mine, finding many flaws with the plot. But an actor under contract has almost no say over what films he's to star in, especially those written with a particular actor in mind. There's no report indicating why, but filming took a break over several weeks in the middle of production, and the hiatus caused Lanza to gain about 100 pounds. If you watch the film, you can see Lanza's weight change from scene to scene. It's distracting, but more distracting is the obvious look that Lanza gives sometimes about his disgust over doing the film. If Lanza didn't like the plot, surely he at least loved the title song, which was written by Nicholas Brodsky and Sammy Kahn. The two of them wrote Be My Love for Lanza in the film The Toast of New Orleans, and it was Lanza's first number one hit record. Brodsky's musical knowledge of opera ranges and Kahn's talent at writing love songs that go down easily made for a song that seemed destined for an Oscar nomination. The first time we hear Because You're Mine is during the opening credits. Khan's lyrics aren't around for very long, but Brodsky's melody stays through the remainder of the credits. Lanza's character, Ronaldo, is an opera singer who has been drafted into the army. On the first day, he's asked by the sergeant to evaluate his sister's singing voice to find out if she could also be an opera singer. Ronaldo does so, and in the course of their sessions, he falls in love with Bridget. While she plays on the piano, Ronaldo belts out the full version of Because You're Mine, not only to show her his full singing range, but to declare his love for her. She joins in later, but only to sing with them, not to profess her love. Note that the title is sung eight times as he sings about the breeze turning into the melody and his heart beating so strong that it could be mistaken for thunder. Sit down and play what you love best. Will you know it? If you love it, I'll know it. In E-flat. You will know it, all right. I only hope it's in E-flat. Thank you. 
you're mine The brightest star I see Looks down my love and envies me Because you're mine Because you're mine Because you're mine The breeze that hurries by Becomes a melody And wine Because you're mine Because you're mine I may live I'll only live for the kiss that you alone may give me and when we kiss that isn't thunder dear it's only my poor heart And it's applause because you're mine. I only know I'll be yours as long as I live. I'll only live for the kiss that you. plot dives and twists and turns around as it clumsily makes its way toward the finale, where Ronaldo sings for a visiting delegation of the United Nations. He starts the show with an aria, then decides to sing Because You're Mine. And of course, we can't have the two lead characters not be together at the end of a Mario Lanza movie, so of course we get Bridget's joining him on stage to sing and kiss in the end. Down my love and envies me because you're mine, because you're mine, because you're mine. The breeze that hurries by becomes a melody and
Lanza sings one other original song in the movie, but perhaps the fact that the songwriters did not have the name recognition as Brodsky and Khan hurt their chances when MGM began promoting the film and its songs. That song was Lee Ah Lu, written by Johnny Lehman and Ray Sinatra. Not much is known of Lehman, except that he only contributed this one original song for a movie and supported his career by selling songs for radio play, many of which never got much play. As for Ray Sinatra, he is not related to Frank Sinatra. He was the music director for many of Mario Lanza's records and stage shows and was obliged to write Lee Ah Lu, which is what the performer sings when he thinks of his former lover. a song that I'll always remember Alu Alu I recall it with memories so tender It's a strange sweet refrain that reminds me Obviously, Lieben and Sinatra had some work to do as songwriters, but many of Lanza's songs were made much better by his performances. Because Your Mind would be Lanza's final record to sell a million copies or more. Lanza was so fed up with the suits at MGM that after he pre-recorded songs for his next film, The Student Prince, he walked off the set. Edmund Purdom took Lanza's place on screen with Lanza's vocals heard on the soundtrack. The report of Lanza's behavior were all over the gossip columns, and it hurt the opera singer's career. Co-star Doretta Morrow was so fed up with Lanza and movie production that she never made another film after Because You're Mine. She returned to the opera stage and then retired from acting in 1960 and passed away in 1964 at age 41 from cancer. So these five songs made for an exciting lineup of nominees for the best Song Award in 1952, and the 25th Academy Awards was going to be a history-making event for many reasons. Of course, the Academy was celebrating its 25th award ceremony, which was still the most popular showbiz event in the country. But the studios were desperate to save money in the wake of television stealing their entertainment money and withdrew financial support of the Academy Awards show. The Academy's desperation didn't last long, though. 
The television network NBC, owned by the Radio Corporation of America since NBC started as a radio network, ponied up $100,000 to buy the rights to broadcast the show. Adjusted for inflation, that would equate to a measly $1 million in 2020 when ABC was paying more than $100 million to the Academy for the TV rights. So the Academy president in 1952, Charles Brackett, made an excellent deal. Not only did the American public get to see their favorite stars gather at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles on March 19, 1953, but they got to see movie stars in New York City at the NBC Century Theater. The simulcast allowed many of the nominees to be present if they were unable to make it to Los Angeles, which increased the chances that all winners would give an acceptance speech. Studios that were initially hesitant about the merging of movie stars and television changed their minds when Ed Sullivan's influence on his talk show led to increased box office after an actor appeared on the show to promote their movie. Some of the acting nominees were busy filming on location and couldn't guarantee they could make it, or didn't want to embarrass themselves on TV after losing an award. Either way, NBC was certain the show would still be a hit. Bob Hope was back as host for the first time since 1946, with Conrad Nagel co-hosting from New York. In addition to dealing with hosting duties, Hope agreed to sing the song he originated in Son of Paleface, Am I in Love, this time with Marilyn Maxwell. James Wyman was in the Hollywood audience, but apparently wasn't in the mood to perform Zing a Little Zong for TV audiences. That honor went to Peggy Lee and Oscar-winning songwriter Johnny Mercer, who didn't write the song and wasn't even nominated for anything that year. Tex Ritter, not Frankie Lane, was at the Oscars to perform High Noon, and it looked like Mario Lanza's reputation prevented him from being asked to sing Because You're Mine for the Oscar show. Billy Daniels, who was definitely not an opera singer, gave a traditional pop performance of the song that did not remind anyone that Lanza was the original performer. Walt Disney, the man whose company created two Oscar-winning songs and would later be a driving force for movie music, was in Hollywood to name the winners of the three music awards. First up was the score for a dramatic film, and on his first nomination, Dimitri Tiomkin won for essentially repeating the melody for his High Noon song throughout the film. As was often the case for non-acting winners, Tiomkin just offered his thanks and left. Alfred Newman did the same when he won the Oscar for the score to the musical film With a Song in My Heart, a movie that used previously written songs but was the top-selling album of 1952. And for the Best Song Award, Disney fumbled over Tiomkin's name when reading the nominations, but not when he announced him and Ned Washington as the winners for High Noon. Disney was Ned Washington's boss when Washington won the Oscar for Pinocchio's When You Wish Upon a Star, and he was all smiles handing this Oscar to Washington. Tiomkin had more to say this time, joking about his two Oscars that he, quote, felt like the mother of two wonderful twins, end quote. Tiomkin made history as just the second person to win the Best Song Award and one of the Score Awards in the same ceremony. The man who did it first was standing right next to him, Ned Washington for Pinocchio. The song High Noon became the first winning song to not be performed by an on-screen character and just the second song to not appear in a musical. 
following the win by Mona Lisa two years earlier. This was a watershed moment in songwriting, creating a major shift in the way songwriters worked in Hollywood. No longer did they feel that original songs had to come from musicals, or at least that their path to an Oscar meant their song should appear in a musical. Tiomkin and Washington knew they had a good thing when they began working together, and whenever Tiomkin's work included an original song, Ned Washington was the man he called. Tiomkin's name will become synonymous with Western films for the rest of the 1950s, though he would branch out every once in a while. Tiomkin's status as an Oscar-winning composer and songwriter, the first full-time score composer to win a Best Song Oscar, seemed to ring the death knell for veteran songwriters who started at the bottom of Tin Pan Alley and worked their way up to owning mansions in Beverly Hills. Ray Evans and Jay Livingston, already two-time Oscar-winning songwriters, said composers like Tiomkin, quote, wrote with their heads. They would sit down and write interesting melodies, but they weren't songs. Background composers decided they were going to write all the songs in their pictures. It started with Tiomkin, and they killed the music writers. Harry Warren couldn't work after that. End quote. Now, I'm not sure that the last part of that quote is accurate, though. Harry Warren was still doing fine in Hollywood through the 1950s, even though he just lost the Oscar to Tiomkin. He's going to have a couple more Oscar-nominated songs that we will hear in future episodes. This will be the last time we hear about Frank Lesser on the Best Song podcast. Thumbelina represented his final Oscar nomination, his fifth, but the prolific songwriter was not retiring. After the success of Guys and Dolls on Broadway, Lesser returned in 1956 with The Most Happy Fella and with Green Willow in 1960. Those were moderately successful, but his next big hit came in 1961 with How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. That show won several Tonys and a second Pulitzer Prize for Lesser. After suffering from lung cancer, Frank Lesser died in 1969 at age 59. All of the other nominated songwriters from 1952 will be back, looking for more Oscar glory, including Sammy Kahn, who is still winless after nine nominations. We'll see who lines up for a chance at the Oscar statuette for 1953 on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Before we go, I want to give a special thank you to Alex Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. And a thank you to all of you for your support by listening and subscribing to the Best Song Podcast. Thanks, of course, for singing along with me. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law. 